Hello, and welcome to CineDrunk, the podcast where we're drunk on cinema. And, of course, alcohol. Brought to you by yeah. Cinemunch.com. I'm one of your hosts, Matt, joined, as always, by my co-host, Nathan. Yes. And Elizabeth. Ah, back to being back second to third. fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> we're back. We're back. So this is our top ten countdown of 2019. If you have any questions about that and why it's coming out in February, listen to the first part, you monster. Why would you start with the second part? Um, this is, we already recorded 10 through 6. This is our 5 through 1. Um, and since we are now in like the top tier of the top tier, the top mm. 1% of the top 1%, you might say, um, <laughs> mm. we have a more uh, top 1% drink. What are we oh, yes. <laughs> sipping on? Um, especially if it's year 1993, <laughs> neighborhood Midtown West. Yeah, <laughs> we have a lychee martini, Ooh. and um, I for one love a lychee martini. Yeah. I mean, this one's pretty much pretty straightforward. It's vod, it's vodka based vodka martini, um, with some um, lychee juice, lychee juice, <laughs> nectar. Yeah, nectar. Thank you. That's Lychee-ness. the word I was looking for. <laughs> oh, good some start. nectar of lychee. <laughs> Um, and some vermouth, of course. Not too much, but a, a tad, since it is a martini after all. A splash. And I think this is going to give us the real perspective we need for these top fives. Um, I think so. Uh, so I'm hopeful, and cheers to my co-hosts, and let's get it going. Chaz. Why don't you start us off? Oh, I'll get it going. Yeah. My number five, right? We're at five. Five through one. My number five movie of the year is Knives Out. Ooh! Okay. Directed by Ryan... Johnson. Uh-huh. You pronounce his name Ryan, right? Yes. yes. Okay. I just love that you pause before Johnson, though, as if that was the Johnson. Is hard. Johnson. Name to say. It's weird. That's a weird name, but John I'm, I'm familiar Sun? with it. Um, so this one, if you haven't seen it, yes, see, see it first of all. It's a lot. It, so many of these movies that I've decided to pick, and it seems like all of us have picked on our own lists, are fun. Mm-hmm. movies diversions if you will which yep. is one of the great things about movies definitely um this one is about a best-selling mystery writer mm-hmm. who dies sort of unexpectedly after his 85th birthday i believe and then it sort of be- and that character is played by christopher Plummer, mm-hmm. which is relevant because christopher Plummer's is relevant Always. <clears throat> Always, especially to me. Yeah. Um, for respecting my... And the rest of the movie is sort of a whodunit. And, but, but not, you know, just a whodunit. I think what I liked about it was partly that a whodunit as a style is sort of like, or it can be old-fashioned, not necessarily in a negative way. And, but it, it was sort of like, in a lovely way, old-fashioned in certain ways. I mean... Of course, they're they're at a mansion, which yes. is like you know, which is a number amazing one. art direction too. Yeah. Yes, such amazing the art production direction. design on that is incredible. But all of this is happening um, with like frequent references to pop cult, not pop culture, but like it's it's very now. Events. It's contemporary yeah. culture and contemporary issues being drawn into this very and and drawn in very well, like. It's not, I shouldn't have even said references. It's not like they're just, you know, whereas some movies are trying to convey the 90s, like we're saying, and throw right. in like low res jeans and. Or it's Britney not a thing Spears. where, like, when you watch this movie in five years, you're going to be like, oof, that's. Right. Right. It's yeah. not like a too specific to a time, but it, 
but it honors the time that we live in in and makes points that need to be made about again income inequality yeah. inherited wealth there's this is a theme this year mm-hmm. um and i think that's for the most part i have a feeling this maybe i think this will be on some other list i don't know mm-hmm. um yeah i think i think that's about all that i'll say another stellar ensemble of oh. course everyone of that family yes. and anna de armas is the lead so super good another stellar ending that last shot <sighs> yep yep won't spoil it see it another film in which a character qu- beat of puking <laughs> yep is not only well deployed but <laughs> oh i don't even want to sp- i don't even want to spoil it i don't want to talk i mean i feel like this is like a couple other movies on here where also like to talk about the plot is genuinely to ruin it, not in a way that, like... Like, I've heard the argument that, like, you know, spoilers shouldn't ruin a movie because it's not knowing what happens in the movie. It's how well those things are executed. But this is one of those things where, as you say, it's a whodunit. But yeah. he's constantly upending our expectations of how an, a whodunit... Like, it's almost like a deconstructed whodunit. Yes. It's never not surprising. So, well, right, it it's like... it tells you the answer is pretty quickly right and yeah. you're like how am i getting the answers i'm 20 minutes into this film like wh- yeah and it's an, it's another film where i had an experience to another film that i believe we'll probably talk about um where i genuinely was like i don't know where this is going yeah. which is so hard for modern audiences especially in a genre that's well tread see a lot of content yep. to surprise yeah mm-hmm. and, yep. and it's genuinely surprising in a lot of terrific ways what a good choice totes Love it. Uh, my number five is a movie we have discussed. It is Booksmart. Nice. Olivia Wilde's directorial debut. As I said when Elizabeth mentioned, I think it's one of the love stories of the year. The Caitlin Deaver, Beanie Feldstein Ugh. relationship at the center of it is just, it's spot on. And you can tell that Olivia Wilde had them live together for like 10 weeks while they were filming. They have so many bits and like, <laughs> kind of like flashy or like dialogue that draws attention to itself or is like idiosyncratic almost like um uh diablo cody type like it it draws attention to the script and but it's so authentically delivered yeah you believe their relationship you are invested in it there's a lot of stuff in the first like half hour 45 minutes where some of it's kind of apatoian like we're going to keep the camera on just to get the punchline yeah but there's a lot less of it throughout the whole movie, so that's why it really sings for me. But then once you get to that party scene, I mean, they go to several parties. Trying, so this is, <laughs> you know, two type A's or like people who were, you know, book smart nerds got into their best colleges, have their future planned out for them, but didn't party or socialize they at all. They did everything they were supposed to do. Right, they did what they were supposed to do. They did not have much followed the formula yeah and then like the night before graduation realized that oh everyone that was like partying and seemed like they were goofing off in high school is also going to these top tier colleges wait a minute we missed out we need to consolidate (laughs) all of our partying that we should have done in high school into one night and it's so good it's such a typical studio comedy buddy comedy high school like super bad but with so much more heart and yeah yeah the two of them are amazing but when it builds to that final party and that long shot of 
as it builds to that fight that they have post the Caitlyn Deaver swimming in the pool, which is such a great scene. Yeah. That's when it really, really kicks in, and Olivia Wilde really establishes herself as such a confident director right. in terms of just getting... With a point of view and yeah. artistry, yeah. She's yeah. not just shooting a script. Like, right. There are choices being made. And all the choices that led to being what it is, it, it's great because it started as a script uh, for, and it's written by four women the, the two women that initially wrote it it was sort of about two girls ahead of their senior prom trying to find dates and like book smart girls trying to find dates before their senior prom someone else came in and kind of rewrote it or upended it so it wasn't quite that and then but all changed one of the characters the Caitlin Deaver character to be a lesbian and that added some nuance and then once Olivia Wilde came on she had another writer come on and they made it what it is and the final product was was well worth yeah. everything it went to it's again a super great ensemble we rewatched it nathan and i recently and even though i knew everything that was coming with <laughs> billy lord every time she was on we were <laughs> crying with laughter no, it's, it's so absurd much. and it takes place outside of reality almost like it's a little too absurd but it, no, it works it's perfect it's perfect it's, perfect. it's similar to any number of rewatchable comedies that I watched all the time growing up, like Romy Michelle's Nine to Five, yeah. more recent things like Mean Girls, Pitch Perfect, like it fits right in with those, and I'm so glad it exists, and that future generations will have this as yeah. a, a touchstone. It's just, it's so warm. Yeah, it's I know I already talked set. about it, so I should keep us moving, but now I just have more to say. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Which, um, one is... Uh, you know, Beanie Feldstein, who's incredible, and she made my top five for supporting actress in Lady Bird mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. I just, you know, we see the type of women who are allowed to be stars of films, and they don't usually look like Beanie Feldstein. Mm-hmm. And it's also a well worn genre of like the ugly duckling who gets picked on in high school and is played by like. Drew Barrymore or sure. Jennifer Jason Lee or Put like glasses these like, on, like exactly. Rachel Lee Cook. Yeah. And I just at the beginning, especially that conversation when she's in the bathroom and she overhears the people talking shit about her. I had this like sinking feeling going in being like they're gonna make fun of the way she looks or they're gonna make fun of her weight. Which, again, this is talking sort of about, like, this high school existing in a fantasy world that doesn't exist because the truth is, like, this is pressure and awful things that happen to women all the time. And the fact that the film never goes there, the fact that the actual expression that they say to her is, say about her when she's overhearing this conversation is that she's a butt-her personality. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is still, like, an insult <laughs> and terrible. But the fact that Olivia Wilde gives this character and gives this actress who looks like something that we don't get to see very often a storyline that does not revolve around her being sensitive about her appearance and her weight is absolutely fucking revolutionary. Yeah. Truly. Mm-hmm. Yep. In a way that, like, you know, I know, like... On This Is Us, right? They have a, a, a character who is an overweight woman and her entire character is about being overweight. Like, yeah. there's just this, like... It's so rare and, again, revolutionary to see. And it was completely liberating and freeing. And this is why I'm like, this is why I'm so happy that people in middle school and high school will have this movie. Yeah. They can watch this. And when she, you know, flirts with 
the one guy, he does seem to be honestly flirting with her. Oh, yeah. And when he makes that with someone else, it's not because he's like, ugh, I would never you. It's just like, no, he's just a flirty guy and he yep. whatever. And he cheers for it. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I just love that it never goes there. Or even like the queer story, right? Which is like thinking of a movie that I did really enjoy because it was a classic high school rom-com, Love, Simon. Mm. But so often, like, the queer stories we see, especially if they're set in high school, are about the coming out. Yep. And the coming out is something that Caitlin Deaver has done many years. I mean, the way the film prefaces it, she's been out for at least a few years. Yep. And instead, it's, okay, I know who I am. I know what my identity is. Now I'm freaked out about actually, like... Acting on it. Acting on it and being Mm -hmm. intimate with someone, which is a... I mean, I say this not as a queer person, so please correct me, but it, it is an experience that everyone has. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, being vulnerable I had that with someone else. Being heterosexual, yeah. which is like, I knew I liked boys for the longest time, but then the prospect of acting on it was a whole different anxiety. So the fact that she's showing us a different side of like queer coming of age stories is also kind of revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And it's just a component of it. Yep. That's mm-hmm. fucking hilarious. Now I'm wishing I would have put it higher. Oh. Yeah. Good ass movie. That's anyway, my number five. Sorry, I, I no. know I already had my time to talk. No, about. it was worth talking about. That's why it's up there. Um, my number five is a film that we have already talked about twice, and is my third directed by a female director, and it is Hustlers by Lauren yeah. Scarfaria. Nice. And I, I, this one I do feel like I chimed in a ton on, so I don't have a ton more to add. I will just say that it is the scammer movie I want. Yep. Like I feel like we live in the age of scammers, and this was. Yeah. Absolutely, the one I wanted to see. I can't wait to like rewatch it all the time. Kiki Palmer is a goddamn star. <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, the best performance of her career. And I guess the only thing I would point out is like I love. <laughs> so Jennifer Lopez's introduction is a one of the best character introductions. Oh, of, certainly of the year. Yep. Maybe of the decade. Like, what <laughs> yeah. a perfect way to introduce your character. And speaking of it being directed by a woman, and there's always this thing, right, which is like, what is the male gaze? Does it mean that, like, women can't be nude or naked or sexual? Is that male gazing? It's like, no, it's the way, and I don't know how to articulate it, but I can see it. <laughs> it's like the old, like, pornography thing, right? Like, I don't know how to describe it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, it, it feels different. And part of it is the music choice, which is choosing fucking Fiona Apple criminal. Mm-hmm. Part of it is the like sheer athleticism oh, and yeah. grace and fierceness of the Jennifer Lopez performance to it. And it's the fact that we don't watch any of the men watching Jennifer Lopez. We watch Constance Wood watching Jennifer like Lopez. Like admire her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see her watching her not in a lascivious way, but in a holy shit, I want to be this woman. And so as an audience, we're watching Jennifer Lopez not being like, ooh, like... Titillating. I've seen almost naked ladies. Or like Jennifer, I get to see Jennifer Lopez do a striptease. No, you're being like, holy shit, I want to be her. Yeah. And it's like aspirational and powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's such a brilliant, like, little scene that explains the whole film. Anyway. What a good movie. Indeed. That brings us to four, me. Right, yeah. number four. My number four, also one we've discussed. It is Pain and Glory. Yeah. Dolori Gloria uh, from Pedro Almodovar. Ugh. 
Uh, and yeah, like we've already said, again, in a year where there were established filmmakers reflecting on their legacy and their art, this was definitely the best of them. Uh, I think Antonio Banderas gives possibly the best male lead performance of the year. Yeah, I don't, I don't have too much to, to add to, to See what, it. what Nathan had said, but it's also, I don't remember what movie we were, we were calling Tender, but it's also just very mm-hmm. oh, a tender. Oh, Neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's soft and sympathetic, but then it's still got those flashes of Elmo. There's like PowerPoint presentations basically throughout it that are like explaining the medical calamities that are befalling this person that are very crudely like throwback technologically, you know, little PowerPoint presentations, but it works. It's, it's very Omodovar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. Can I say the one thing that has made me laugh about this movie, which, again, I am, like, so disappointed I couldn't make it to in the theater, is that every time it does pop up, though, on lists or, like, mm-hmm. even... I'm always, like... I always think first I read it as Pain and Gain and oh, think of that Bay Michael Bay movie with Mark the Wahlberg Rock and, and the Rock. And I'm always, like, like when it's on critics' list, I'm, like... Pain and gain, and then I'm like, oh, pain and glory. Right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. um, yeah. Yep, it's nice. great. And there's some really, really fantastic, specific scenes that seared themselves into my brain and felt like my own experiences, and that is a job well done. Amazing. That's my number four. Pain and glory. See it. Uh, is it to me? To you, number four. Oh, no, now I feel like I have been talking too much because I stepped in on your book smart. <laughs> no, you're good. Sorry to the to the listener. I'm just going to say listener, assuming we have one. We'll cut you <laughs> Thank you. Just feel free <laughs> <Yeah>. to edit. <laughs> um, my number four is Midsummer by Ari Oster. Mm, nice. Um, I have, so we made notes about what we wanted to say about it. <laughs> and my first note is, it's a primal scream. Yeah. Which is how I felt about that movie. Um, I have not watched the director's version yet, although I'm very excited to. But the theatrical cut was a good two and a half hours. Um, I saw it by myself at an Alamo draft house. And I could have easily stayed there and spent many more hours in that weird little town in Sweden. Sweden. Like. I, I was I was I was ready to join the cult, basically. Um, I think it's just audacious. Mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly vivid. It's another director who, like Ari Aster, has a clear point of view and is meticulous about the worlds he is creating. Every shot, nothing is unsparing. And he also, between this and Hereditary, it seems to me has a, a very invested interest in um, how grief is transformative. Mm. So that to me is like a big part of it. Uh, for those, I guess I should give a brief synopsis. So Midsummer, uh, it starts with Florence Pugh, who experiences uh, an extreme loss at the very beginning of the film and is then like completely depressed and lost and she has this boyfriend played by Jack Rayner who's a really shitty guy and was like probably ready to break up with her until this tragedy befell her and then he of course like felt like he couldn't break up with her and she is like trying to hold on to him because it's her only sense of normalcy and she finds out that he's taking this trip um, to this like remote village 
in Sweden uh, for a month in the summer, and she sort of gets invited along with him and his two friends from home, and then also, like, a transfer student who's from this place in Sweden, and uh, brings him along. And then they get there, and it's, like, a weird cult place, and I don't want to say too much more, nope. because you should just watch it and become absolutely immersed. But they're, like, studying, they're, like, they're studying, anthropology yeah, students, yeah, yeah. basically, who are, like, doing their thesis, or right. trying to decide what their thesis is. Right. Um, Florence Pugh is, like, one of our best working actresses. Damn. Holy cow. She also has the best pout face I've ever seen, like, her <laughs> about-to-cry face. Yeah. Is freaking incredible. Um, Jack Rayner is terrific as the world's shittiest boyfriend. And both of them have such phenomenal American accents. Great American accents. Really? Um, uh, oh, what's his name? Who plays the real D-bag, the vaping D-bag in the movie. Uh, he's from, anyways, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't know. He's, he's in... Oh, Will Poulter. Thank you, Will yep. Poulter. Will Poulter is great. Uh, William Harper Jackson is great. The guy who plays their their friend from the village who takes them there. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was so good. Yeah, he's really good. He's so charismatic and intriguing and has such a great screen presence, which is exactly what that character needs to have. Yep. Um, the other things I... Again, I don't want to talk too much about it because I think it is a film that you have to experience and watching it felt like an experience that was actually like cleansing for me. So I, before my like very healthy, happy relationship now was in an extremely emotionally abusive relationship where my partner was emotionally abusive of me. And this film is partly about, uh, getting out of a toxic relationship. And I felt like I had accomplished in that two and a half hours, what like a year and a half of therapy (laughs) has done for me. You know what I mean? It was like, And the other thing that I love is there's sort of an idea within this, like, community of uh, shared experiences between the women in the group. And I'm trying to figure Mm. out how to talk about it because it was was the moment that I was like, this movie's in my fucking top ten (laughs) in the theater. Um, There are, like, two things happening at once that are juxtaposed, and it's basically, like, two sets of the women in the village – And one is a bunch of women all experiencing sexual ecstasy at the same time, communally. And the other is women collectively feeling extreme grief and pain and like screaming together in agony. And I was like, this is the most incredible thing I've seen. And last year, um, Support the Girls was on my list. It was number five. Mm. And I talked about how the scene of them at the end, like screaming into the wind was just my mood for 2018. (laughs) My mood for 2019 is just like a collective visceral (laughs) communal scream (laughs) amongst women. Like that is what this year has been. Um, So it was like (laughs) hard to watch the movie. There's some really graphic scenes still like a horror movie it's yeah. still a horror movie but it also was like strangely the most cathartic film I saw here <laughs> like I came out of it being like Whoo! I got that I got through that anyways I was very deeply affected by it in a way that like hereditary got under my skin but didn't quite get there emotionally mm. there were like images that were striking that stuck with me and like ideas that stuck with me but the film as a whole didn't quite resonate me with me whereas like midsummer like i felt it in my bones and yep. in my soul 
So that's my number four. That nice. seems like it's setting a really high bar for my three through one. <laughs> uh, what is my your number, number four? four? Yeah. My number four <clears throat> is The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, which I watched this morning and, <laughs> and was entranced uh, by. It's directed by L. My High Tail Feathers and Kathleen. Kathleen Hepburn, um, and it's about two. It's about two indigenous women in Vancouver, Canada, who are briefly sort of brought together by circumstance, by horrible circumstance, namely that one of them has been abused by her boyfriend. Mm. And after that, there's like a there's a few scenes of setup to the movie before that meeting, these two women meeting, but. From the point that they meet on, it's pretty much just a series of long takes, just a few, I think, um, and told in real time. Oh, wow. So it, it really, it, it's kind of like, uh, so, okay, it's a tough sit, <laughs> let's say that, um, but it also puts, like, <clears throat> it puts the focus where the focus needs to be, which is on the person who's experiencing harm and the person who's the victim and in rape in like a rape culture like we have yeah even showing the the rapist or showing and sorry the abuse specifically we're talking about physical abuse in this one instance yeah but um my point being that we don't see the abuse this the abuse is not part of the action yeah. and i really appreciated that mm-hmm. um because i think We've all seen plenty of abuse on screen yeah. um, for, for not so valid goals. I mean, it's one thing if it's, uh, often it's to, serving uh, your... Often to serve to characterize a male's yes. uh, goals. Arc. Yes, and yeah. serve as torture porn yeah. and, like, and, and all of these things. This, they're actually, I don't think there was a man on screen the entire nice. time, which was amazing. Damn. Um, very quiet, very intimate, very slow-moving movie i mean you're you're following a woman in real time who's just experienced intense trauma Mm -hmm. and is trying to survive this and meanwhile the woman who comes um to meet her is also indigenous but she's pretty much white passing um whereas the one who's experienced the abuse is not is is first nations looking from the outset she's heavier set She's um, much lower income. Like mm-hmm. the other woman who meets her, it has a nice apartment, mm-hmm. a pretty stable life from the cues that we get. And so you're seeing this, you're seeing her, the, you know, the, the one who has more money and more power in the world. You're seeing that woman sort of tr- really desperately try to help this other woman, but sh- you're seeing how she's hindered by her privilege too right like you like you see her say we like we need to call the cops immediately that's the first thing we need to do and the woman who's abused is like no i don't want and eventually is like are are you deaf yeah and this is happening during this really intense like the woman is taking uh the woman who she finds who's been abused to her home to give her some safe harbor and get her away from the the man who, well, I said he, he isn't seen on screen. He is heard screaming. Yeah. So anyway, I don't want to get like way in the weeds with the plot, but 
holy shit, this movie is a must-watch. Yeah, and I've heard good things about it. And it's made by two indigenous women too, right? Are the directors indigenous? Well, the director is the one oh, of sorry, the main characters. Gotcha. The yeah. other woman, I'm not sure. I don't know who she is. Yeah. But um. Yeah, I mean, there's it. It's. I mean, I like what you think about. Right. <laughs> I like what you say about like it putting the spotlight not on glamorizing the like violence, which is the thing that we often like focus on in storytelling. Yeah. And then also, like, you know, dealing with putting a spotlight on abuse and sexual violence is a huge problem in indigenous communities. Yeah. And they're sort of, like, the forgotten the forgotten people, right? Like, there's literally, like, the forgotten women, which are all these indigenous women in both the United States and Canada who have just been murdered and, like, disappeared. Which this director has done a short film about that. Yeah, like, numbering yeah. in the, like, so, thousands. Yeah. Like, thousands of indigenous women have been murdered and their murders just go unsolved and unnoticed and yeah. whatever. So it's, like, you know, like, this is where, like, filmmaking can be really important, right? Which is to, like, give a voice to people who stories we don't get to see very often right and then to also then look at how the intersection of like white passing versus not versus Mm -hmm. poverty versus wealth like all of those things can insulate you from anyways it sounds amazing yeah tough to watch but yeah and the other thing the last thing i'll say is that um the woman who has not experienced immediate abuse in like the day of that the movie's being yeah or the story's being told she it's it's made known that she battles anxiety and the way that they sort of the way that they the way the director and the filmmakers in general um convey that through sound design i thought was really effective it's like it's this very like i said very like subdued slow intimate naturalistic type of film mm-hmm. um, one might say cinema verite you know? <laughs> <laughs> yet there are these like strange like spikes of sound design that are sort of out of place but then you're like no this is exactly in place because one of these women has experienced immense trauma yeah. the other one is trying not to have a panic attack yeah. and it's just done so well yeah. that, that um, it makes it an either, even tougher sit Hmm. But uh, well worth it. Worth it. So Netflix. Yes, Netflix. That's my number four. And will you say the name again? Just because the body remembers when the world broke open. Body title. So when the title, the title, whatever comes on the screen, it's also the title is also given in a native language. So I'm, I have to look into it. But I'm wondering if it maybe it's a saying of some sort. Because mm. in terms of like marketing, the body remembers when the world broke open. <laughs> right. It's not the tightest yeah. like marketing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love it, but like, yeah. it's like I sell tickets. Right. Sort of so nice. Anyway, which I love to the, to talk about a different film that was in our top tens, The Farewell. The actual Chinese translation of the Chinese title is, I think, "Don't Tell Her." Yeah, like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. mm. lovely. Um, all right, number three. Is it me? Bronze medal. You got it. Number three. Woo! Again, this speaks to, I think, probably it's my number two and my number one, that this is only my number three. My number three is Knives Out yeah. by Ryan Johnson. And in the notes, this is literally all I wrote. This movie was made for me. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, it is pretty 
everything I want in a movie ever? An Agatha Christie type murder mystery? Yes, yeah, please. Have I seen every episode of a TV series called Midsummer Murders, which is a British murder history <laughs> murder series? Yes, yep. I have. <laughs> have I seen every PBS Agatha Christie adaptation? Yes, yep. I have. <laughs> Will I defend the the Kenneth Branagh uh, um, Orient Express, Murder on the Orient Express? Sure. To a certain degree, I will. Because, listen, I love a good old-fashioned whodunit murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Do I love films with big casts full of <laughs> actors that I love? Well, I guess yep. I do. Do I love Chris Evans in a knit sweater? Yeah. Who doesn't? Sure do. Lush costuming and art. Sure art. do. Do yeah. I want to see Daniel Craig having a grand time singing song? <laughs> speaking of song time, singing song time yeah. in the car? Absolutely. <laughs> Who doesn't? Does it have Christopher Plummer being goddamn charming? <laughs> For sure. Is it unexpected? Yes. Am I taken on twists and turns? Yes. And then, this I think is the most important thing is that it doesn't cheat the mystery. This is a case, right, where plot holes would irritate me. Mm-hmm. Yep. It does not That's cheat the mystery, and every single thing that turns out to be there in the end is given to us. Mm-hmm. He shows us all of the clues. We just don't know what we're looking at mm-hmm. until yep. the end, which is exactly how you want That's it to true. be, as opposed to just like a surprise character who you didn't know. Oh, you know what I mean? Like some... Yep sort of cheat and none of it is a cheat um i it's so much fun and again it's just a movie made for me i don't know how to even go i mean it handles i appreciate the way it handles like immigration i appreciate not unlike get out the way it also confronts um uh white liberalism Mm. And how allyship is often performative and doesn't come through in a clinch. Like it, it says Mm. something that the character they learned to describe as like the Nazi, the little Nazi on Twitter, is basically just a punchline in one of the lesser explored characters. The like, uh, what's his name? He changed his last name now. Jaden Lieberhauer, but no, no, it's not Lieberhauer. Anyways. You know he's not not the focus, and the focus is much more on the granddaughter who is like, I support you, I blah, blah, blah. And then when like her own comfort is threatened, mm-hmm. she tosses... Just turn, yeah. yeah. Um, is that a Catherine something? Catherine Langford. Langford, yes. Yeah, you can tell I've had my cocktails now and I didn't bother to write down the amazing ensemble because I just wrote, this movie was made for me. Um, Don Johnson? Don Johnson is having, what a year. Right? Don, Don Johnson, Johnson was in that movie? Yeah, yeah he's, he's Jamie, Jamie Curtis's husband. husband. Oh and then was in Watchmen. So, good. so Watchmen, good, yeah. Which would be probably on all our top tens oh, yeah. as a movie. For sure. Um, yeah, so it's just for... I, I would just point out because, again, I could talk for a really long time. A great opening and final shot. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, I, you know, I know he's my guy and I love him so much. But Christopher Plummer, I think, has a really hard job. Because he has to completely establish his character and the stakes in a few scenes, mostly at the beginning. There are a few flashbacks. And specifically, we have to feel his chemistry with Ana de Armas. And their couple of scenes together are so beautiful and their chemistry is so good. And that final, you know, the like scene, bet- the big scene between the two of them is so well played by both of them Mm -hmm. that while the movie is very funny, while you've got this broad performance from many of the actors in it, including Daniel Craig, 
that's the thing that anchors it in real emotion. Yep. And it could easily be like a Clue type movie, which don't get me wrong, I freaking love Clue, where it's like just laugh a minute, mm-hmm. fun murder mystery, I had a great time. But I think it's that relationship that then creates the emotional stakes. And it's again, like tone balancing, it's really hard for me to feel also emotionally impacted while also just like, oh my God, it's so fun. This is so funny. Tony Collette playing <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow Basically, and Goop. Yeah. Fucking hysterical. It, like to have all that, but then for me to also be like deeply invested in that central relationship between Christopher Plummer and Anna Darnas. And it's because he's a goddamn pro. So anyways, that movie was made for me, and yet it's still only my number three. Thanks, Ryan wow. Johnson. Uh, Nathan, it's to you. Number three? Oh, my number three has been talked about. It's Booksmart. Yes. Directed by Olivia Wilde. We've talked a lot about this, but I wrote the high school buddy comedy I've been waiting for my whole life. <laughs> um... <laughs> That's, I mean, that sort of undersells it because really, what high school body comedy have I loved that much? Whereas this, I'm all in. This yeah. movie, I'm all in. Um, something that maybe hasn't quite been touched on yet would be how br- visually brilliant it is. Mm-hmm. Especially for today's generation of TikTok and what have you. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but just the variety, the scenic... Your hair is graying as we sit here. <laughs> it actually is. Oh, okay. It actually literally is. I thought oh, you were... No, I, was I was like, joking. funny time to point it out. I was joking. <laughs> I was joking about you being a old but man. <laughs> listeners, it is graying. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so the visual variety. It was a visual feast. You have You go from a scene where... We've referenced the swimming pool scene, which is a visual treat. You, we mm-hmm. have the scene where they're tripping hmm. out of their minds and <laughs> they're Barbie-like dolls <laughs> yeah. that are just moving around this room. Yeah. Barbie size as well. You have them um, at an abandoned yacht, super yacht party. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> them in the back of a car share with lights strung all around. I just thought like the attention to to visual interest also yeah. for, for this type of movie really it, it pushed my buttons in all the ways that I wanted my button I know that's usually a negative thing it caressed my buttons that is <laughs> horrifying yeah no that was wrong too but, um, yeah book smart it, and, and not you know because of the year we've all had and, and that I've had it's just fucking funny yeah. and fun to watch yeah and then the yep. last thing, I promise this really is the last thing. <laughs> um, the fact, we've talked about how it's kind of this utopian vision, and and I love that. I've also seen that as a bit of a criticism, but like, what, we're going to criticize that, oh, there's not enough um, white supremacy in this movie. <laughs> Be- like, it's literally everywhere. Can't we get one, like, aspirational utopia? Right. Like, I think about the um, Dan Levy when he's talking about Schitt's Creek. Is he's always like, I just, like, I, I live and experience homophobia in the real life. I want to create a show where people can just enjoy and laugh and not have to live in that space. Yeah, and I think that's the threat. And it's, and it's, and the what threat makes it is enjoyable. Us, us. The threat is anyone who should be shown as being subdued or um, oppressed or held back or pushed yeah. down or out of their power. The threat is seeing them thrive. Right. Yep. Cheers to that. Yep. 
Chaz. I love it. Um, that's it for my number three. <laughs> nice. Uh, my number three, we have not yet discussed Ooh. another female-directed film. It's Little Women. Ooh. Greta Gerwig's adaptation of, of the, I guess, classic Louisa May Alcott <laughs> novel that I've never read or <laughs> seen. That's not something to even... Such Philistines. I've read it. I have not. I hadn't experienced any version of this story. No, it's not. He has read the sequel, Little Men, though, just to be clear. Of course. Several times. (laughs) That's my my Bible. Nope. Um, But yeah, this was my first introduction to the material, and it feels like a story and characters that I've lived with my whole life. Because it was just so well executed and such a phenomenal adaptation and update really it feels fresh and modern and of the now but clearly it's not it's a period piece yeah i love i mean again i haven't seen any other previous adaptation which are uh adaptations which are i'm sure much more faithful to the source material but the fact that greta gerwig it feels like a really thrillingly alive not interaction, but I guess a conversation between writers or artists, between Greta Gerwig as a writer and creator and Louisa May Alcott, in that she used, she makes the character of Joe as, of course, exquisitely played by Saoirse Ronan because she's bomb. Um, and she's just like meant to play these characters. Right, as, as a writer, as an author, as someone who creates, she infuses her own sense of what, to her, Greta Gerwig means to be a writer and a creator and using Louisa May Alcott's own words from other writings, from interviews or, you know, known thoughts of hers to create that, like, the success of the movie is that she this this character writes a novel and is paid adequately for it and it's, it's so moving yeah that it create it, it includes the negotiation scene for her fee right the details yeah. of yeah. like what percent she's gonna get how it's created you know selling it to the whole all the tracy letts scenes are great yeah. tracy letts what a what a treasure he is um but yeah it's just very respectful to the actual narrative of what the march sisters tale is um and so well cast i think yeah. all of those sisters are such distinct star personalities. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, we've only seen Eliza Scanlon in a, well, just sharp objects for us, yeah. which is fucking incredible. In that. And also, Beth could not be more different from her character in Sharp Objects. Oh, yeah, incredibly <laughs> so. But they're such distinct personalities on their own that within 10 minutes of this movie, you sense all of those sisters as individuals because of the casting and the performances, but then also as a unit, as a family that's grown up together and experiencing the same things in this time period. It's so lush and all the crafts are perfect that Alexandre Desplat's score is incredible. Obviously the costuming, the art direction is so good. Louis Garrel is beautiful to look at. (laughs) Timmy Chalamet is just excellent as Laurie. Florence Pugh, another fantastic performance from her this year. Yeah. I'm so glad she got that nomination. She is a fucking star, and she is going to be huge. Yeah, I just, I it works. It sings and feels brisk and light, and I wanted to live in that world for longer. And another fantastic Chris Cooper performance. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear because I have both read the book several times, many times. I read it a lot when I was younger. Um, and then I've seen actually every adaptation of it. I've seen the Catherine Hepburn version. I've seen the June 
whatever the fuck her last name is. I'm a little too drunk to recall it yeah. at this moment. The like 1950s version. I've seen the 1994 version mm-hmm. with We Don't Own a Writer, which I watched a ton. And then this one. And so, anyways, it's it's good to know that someone who is not intimately familiar, since she does play with the structure so much. Which I loved that, too. And yeah. how it played with time. And it, I guess, I mean, I again, I haven't seen any other right. ones. But I, I, a lot of the other ones, apparently, Joe is much more so the lead and the focus. 100%. And, I mean, this still, I definitely would say Saoirse Ronan's the lead. But all the sisters' arcs are kind of peaking around the same time. And so it gives them... M- each of them individually more weight. Yes. Yeah. Which definitely Which does not happen works. in the book and does not happen in every other adaptation because it just occurs chronologically. It's fucking smart and I hope Greta wins adapted screenplay because yeah. she deserves it. Yep. Um, That's number three. What is... I started that one, right? With bronze medal. Yeah. So Nathan... And number two. Silver number medal. Two. Oh my Your gosh. gosh. <clears throat> 2019? Okay, my number two is one that has not been mentioned. (sighs) Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Directed by Celine Siama. Before you go on, I just have to say I'm so pissed and I want the listeners to know that this (laughs) fucking film only had a one-week qualifying run where it played in theaters and it is not on streaming and it'll be back in theaters in like February and the week that it was playing in theaters was literally the busiest work week of my entire, like, September to December. So I have not seen this fucking movie, and it enrages me. And I think in protest, when I see it, I'm just going to put it on my list next year <laughs> as a 2020 movie. Anyways, continue. Amen. I think you'll want to. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's sublime. It, it, is, it is, I mean... It's not as enraging to me because I had the opportunity to see it, but it is enraging that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, if I can be a little less selfish for a second, it's it's unfortunate that it very few people have had the chance to see it. What I think is fortunate it is is that it is absolutely timeless. It is probably the most timeless movie I saw last year, mm-hmm. in a way, in the sense that like a thousand years from now this will be art that's hopefully appreciated unless we're even dumber than, than we are now. If we exist. Yeah. Well, we won't, but I mean AI. No, as a species. I mean AI. I mean, I mean we, AI. We definitely won't. That goes without saying that a thousand years from now. <laughs> anyway, the, the like light synopsis, broad strokes, if you will, as if a painting. Um, <laughs> Would you say that this film is like a painting? So here's what I'm I read. Sorry, at the, like no, here's what I wrote at the beginning. So there, we've all heard about a movie from the last decade, sometime that was overhyped, over-reviewed, <laughs> over-reviewed, over-reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> Too many um, people saw it. I famously said that it would be would have been better as a painting. Mm-hmm. Famously is the key there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are some movies that are wait, which movie? I don't want to say. Oh, okay. It was Whiplash. It was fine. It oh, really wasn't yes. like a horrible movie. It was just so overpraised yeah. as a movie that I thought should have been a painting. <laughs> it was just so clear. Sometimes it's so clear that <laughs> it should have been a painting. imagining that painting. Then there are movies that are about paintings, which this one is. <laughs> and then there are movies where like, every... I was thinking of like the box office mojo <laughs> breakdown for like movies, movies about, about paintings. paintings. <laughs> I'm big sorry. Eye- I will really let you speak. Hey, big eyes really swept <laughs> <laughs> the world a few years back. So, anyway, this one 
is about paintings and every goddamn frame could stand on its own as a painting mm-hmm. in a world-class museum. Mm-hmm. This movie is disarmingly beautiful. Let me get back to the plot. <laughs> it's set in France in the 1700s. A painter is hired to paint a woman who is sort of arranged to be married. And it's a female painter. A f- yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. A lady painter, if you will, comes <laughs> to paint another lady who is is supposed to be married, does not want to, has just left the convent, I believe, mm-hmm. um, previously to this. There's already been an attempt at this painting, like some artist was hired to paint her and she refused because she doesn't want to get married. I mean, many reasons, but she's difficult. And so this lady painter is hired... <laughs> To come paint her and hired by her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, to be like a companion. To for be her, a but companion. Also sneakily paint. Yes. She, I was getting okay. there. She, <laughs> she was going to paint. She's hired to paint this portrait, but is not allowed to like let it be known that she's painting. She has to surreptitiously, secretly sort of like hang out with this woman during the day, paint her at night from memory. Right. Basically is how it turns out. Right. Or during the day when she's napping. Whatever. It's all done secretly, but it turns into a romance, and it is, it is like riding a wave of desire. It's like riding, mm-hmm. it's like going on life and love the ride. <laughs> <laughs> That'll make it to the poster. <laughs> when um, it finally gets a decent release in February. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's what I mean is that it's exhi- it's exhilarating. Yeah. Whole, so it's a slow burn, but it's a slow burn, but it's exhilarating. Satisfying. It's precise. Mm-hmm. Very. It's every moment has its reasons for being there, has its place. These the f- these women are incredible performers. They're also incredible looking with the makeup and the costuming and the lighting and mm-hmm. everything. The f- just on screen there's there's such a magnetic quality to yeah palpable like you just want to keep watching them Mm -hmm. because they're doing so much too so subtly with Mm -hmm. their with their limited you know it's not like the most verbose screenplay probably i mean there's plenty of dialogue but but they do a lot without dialogues Mm -hmm. as well and um this movie i this this movie would be in contention for my Top 10 of the decade of the 2010s. Wow. And yet it's That's, your number two. And it's my number two. <laughs> so my number one is also in contention. But yeah. <laughs> well, Joker was really good. No, I'm <laughs> um, anyway, I'm so excited for everyone to see this who didn't get a chance and <laughs> wants to see it. Um, if you're able to see it in a theater. Yeah. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. Nice. nice. That's my number two. My number two, my runner-up, my silver medal of 2019, a movie we haven't discussed yet, but I'm sure we're about to, is Parasite. Yeah. Bong Joon-ho's fucking masterpiece. Never heard it of is it. No, I'm just kidding. truly shocking that this is not my number one of the year, but right. my number one just is my number one. Um, but I, I mean, Parasite is... It's flawless. I don't mm-hmm. even know what to say about it. It's also one of those films, again, sort of like Knives Out. Actually, like a, a few of the films that we've discussed... It's genuinely best not to know very much going into it. Yep. I hadn't seen a trailer or read a synopsis going in, and I'm very, very glad I did. It is a film that defies uh, 
being a specific genre. You can't categorize it. It it is a thrill ride. It's a roller coaster that you get on. You <laughs> yeah. know you are in capable hands because Bong Joon Ho takes it's a you. Master. It's a just like yeah. us and other movies we've discussed. Like you know you are in capable hands. You are you can sit back and relax because you are going to be taken on this ride that defies genre and categorization and yeah. You know the hands hilarious. know themselves. You know like the it's an assured yes yes grip that this yep yep artist has that helps yep yep just blending style and tone and social commentary (laughs) on any number of subjects so well everything is executed so fucking well every every choice is perfect and production design is incredible amazing every single score is so good each of those apartments were built for this movie yep specifically constructed and built because Bong Joon-ho, director Bong, and his collaborators had an artistic vision and they needed to execute it by building from the ground up. Yep. And I'm so fucking glad. I mean, even if like nothing the else, that this one best ensemble yeah. oh my from gosh. Screen Actors Guild is Those incredible. actors, too, are amazing. Each of them. It's, you know, it's interesting because there's been a lot of criticism, which I think is absolutely valid about the fact that, you know, it was nominated for... All of these awards for screenplay, for which it, it bears mentioning that no Korean film has ever been nominated for an Oscar before, ever, ever which is also crazy given the Even like the foreign, or the yes, yes, international, international foreign film yeah. ever, which is uh, just speaks to the Academy's general biases against uh, Asian cinema because yeah. also Korean film has been so influential on American film for the last at least this century, like yeah, for sure. Right, there have been so many exceptional ones. So, that also have been, like, remade and, you know, that have been hugely influential. So, it's, like, and then this film, like, broke through not just by, like, getting the international feature, but is, like, straight up best picture, best director, best screenplay, right? Like, these big awards, and then they're, like, but how did none of the actors get nominated? Which, on the one hand, I think does speak to biases about... uh, both foreign language performances and also how people see Asian performers and sure. everything like that. But I will say, while I think like I was hoping Song Kang Ho, who plays uh, the father, the, the patriarch family, yeah. of the poorer family, um, would have like well deserved that. And in some ways, because of his the specificity of his emotional arc and. And he's maybe the most recognizable face. He's definitely the most famous, the most recognizable face of the cast. And I'm trying to figure out a way to say it without like spoiling plot points. But one of the bigger twists sort of rests entirely on his performance to make you believe that sure. the film would yes. go in the direction yes. that it goes. Yeah. So I think in that way, like he has a bigger burden than some of the other actors in that capacity. But it is one of those cases, though, because even now as we're preparing to do our own top five in performances, it's hard to single out because everyone in the ensemble is so exceptional. And so key to making the film work. Yeah. Like, rarely have I been so thrilled about a Best Ensemble winner at the SAG. Like, truly. Yeah, if nothing else. In a year of incredible ensembles, Mm -hmm. this one might be the best. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. It's pretty much a perfect film. If you haven't seen it, the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those films, speaking of films that could be like overpraised or whatever, that absolutely is not. No. Nope. 
Like, if you think it's just critics being, like, stuck up or whatever. Like, no, go see it. It's a thrill ride. It's funny. Yeah. Our audience was, like, eat. I mean, I would definitely, if there's still a chance to see it with a packed audience, like, see it with a packed audience. Yeah. Our, our audience was incredibly responsive. Like, yeah. what a thrill ride. What a journey. What a journey. Yeah, that's my number two. Nice. Um, my number two has now been mentioned. It is a little film called Little Women. Oh, those oh. petite. The, the um, miniature. Yes. The Little Women. The Little Women by Greta Gerwig, who is my fifth female director, so half my top ten. Mine Directed too. by women. Um, and this one, this one is hard for me only because I could genuinely do like a two-hour master class on why this movie is exceptional, so I'm trying to find... The things with which to talk about to be relatively brief. <laughs> um, you know, I guess I would start with Lady Bird was my number one of 2017 in a very stacked year with some incredible films. For sure. Because I, I, it resonated with me so personally. Again, sort of like Knives Out. It was a movie made for me, only it was made not for the pleasure center the way... Although Lady Bird is also very pleasurable and funny, but not just to activate the pleasure centers of Elizabeth Selner's taste, but <laughs> to, uh, you know, hit me in a deep, like, oh my God, this is my life. I'm seeing things. So I loved Lady Bird so much. And when I heard Greta Gerwig's follow-up was Little Women, I have to admit that I was disappointed. Me too. Because there have been so many adaptations. As much as I love Little Women and like, especially love the 1994 version and the and the book I was like I don't she's such a specific unique voice and so contemporary and so like, contemporary Mumblecore, that I was like Francis I don't really want to see her do a stayed period piece like nothing about that made sense and in, and then I saw it and was like oh it absolutely makes sense and it's almost like this interesting way of Greta Gerwig like honorary honoring her like foremothers yeah. You know what I mean? There's this, like, the film is actually, like, in conversation with contemporary America and with an artist in the 1860s, a female artist in the 1860s, having a conversation in dialogue with a female artist in 2019. Yeah. And in previous film versions, Joe being a writer has just been, like, a plot point and a vague characteristic, but the films have never been an ex- actual exploration of what it means to be an artist and to be in pursuit in that of that, mm-hmm. and how your idea of being an artist can be in conflict with your um, with the need to make money, yeah. like how art and commerce interact and require compromise of one another, mm-hmm. especially when you add the added component of being a woman on top of it. Yeah. Which is still just, again, as we're talking about, right, that apparently no woman made a movie good enough to be nominated for Best Director. <laughs> director, yeah. Like, it is still a conversation that women artists are having to have. Granted, even more so if you also add in the intersectionality of being a black woman or a woman of color or a queer woman, etc. So, like, Greta certainly has privilege as a white woman. But anyway... Um, and I, 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 that was so resonant and new and fresh and doesn't exist in any other telling of this story. And then the flashback structure that she imposes 
makes it so that each of the sisters' journeys is informed by us knowing who they become. Which means when you see, like, a lot of people have talked about justice for Amy, because which is the Florence Pugh character, because in most versions, Amy is a brat. She's mm-hmm. a spoiled brat. Then she goes away and comes back as this very sophisticated woman who's married to Lori. You don't really see her courtship of Lori. The whole thing just feels weird. It feels like someone was like told Louise May Alcott, like, you can't just get rid of Lori. The people love Lori. And she's like, well, Joe already turned him down. Fine, I'll marry him off to Amy. Like, yep. that's really kind of how it feels. But instead, you see who Amy is. You see the things that have informed her. You see her grow from who she is into this. She has... An incredible speech about both like what it is to be a woman and to make the choice to marry and what the options are for women at the time that the film is set but she also has this incredible speech about um or maybe it's not even a speech maybe it's just a couple of lines of dialogue because she has been into art you see her pursuing art much like joe like there's this running parallel mm. between joe the writer and amy the visual artist yep. and amy going to paris getting this opportunity to go to paris to explore her art and realizing that there's a difference between being whatever like good at drawing and being an artist and having the realization that she does not have that gift yeah and how challenging that, like, there's just so much added depth and resonance to every single character that I felt to my bones. Basically, also, I have to say, so, you know, Beth, spoiler alert for a book that came out in, you know, two centuries ago, Beth dies. I learned that from friends. And it has never, right, and it has never been a particular thing that moved me. In part because Beth is usually played as this, like, angelic, saintly character. Who then her dying is, like, the biggest tragedy because it's like, she was the best of us and it's a tragedy. Whereas in this, Beth feels completely human. And Mm -hmm. it isn't played for goodness so much as it's played for debilitating social anxiety. Mm -hmm. And Chris Cooper, oh my god. His scenes, his couple of scenes with Beth... With her, yeah. ...are so good. And Eliza Scanlon is so good. And all those scenes of the sisters being sisters where they're, like, very physical and they're tackling each other and they're not behaving the way we see women in costume dramas behave. Oh, no. They're behaving like real fucking people. And that moment when Beth gets the piano, and, of course, I already know, oh, God, she's contracted scarlet fever by going to this house to look in on the families, which even that, usually the way it's played is it's like everyone else is too busy to go look in on this family, but Beth is so good that she still goes. And in this, it's like she's pissed at her sisters, and it's like, fine, you're not going to go, I'll go by myself, which is so much more, again, like resonant to keep using that word. Like she just feels like a real person. And Mm -hmm. that scene where she goes to Chris Cooper and gives him a hug, I'm tearing up talking about it right now, and gives him a hug for giving her the piano. I started <laughs> crying in the movie theater in a way that I was like pinching my leg to not start like openly sobbing, making sound. And I basically was just crying on and off for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like it was so moving to me in a way that I didn't think like a little woman film would be. Right. Yeah. Especially when you know all the beats. Yes, yes. When I like know what's coming, but she found 
this fresh way. The other final thing, because I know I've talked too much, and again, I could give literally like a two-hour podcast on the brilliance of this film, which again says something that this is only my number two. And actually, I would compare this year to the year that 20th Century Woman came second to Moonlight, where like in any other year, 20th Century Woman would be my number one with a bullet. But um, is that one of her Greta Gerwig's choices that I freaking love is that Professor Baird in the book is literally described as having no handsome features or like not even handsome. I think it's like no even distinguishable features on his face. And she's like, fuck that. I'm going to cast someone who's hot Why and not? French and young. And it's a great choice. Yep. Amen. So anyways, that's my number two. Sorry. I got emotional. I've had too many drinks. Such a great movie. Um, all right. We are two. Our number ones, our bronze medals, before we do the drum roll, which I have a feeling Nathan and I have the same number one, um, should Let's we just quickly yeah, what, do our runner-ups? Yeah. Great. So before we dive into our gold medals, uh, some other films that I considered or that were definitely in my top films of the year. Uh, some honorable um, mentions, if you will. Yes. Uh, many of which that have already been mentioned. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Um, the double combo of female uh singers her smell and wild rose both super great films for very different reasons yes nathan's number 10 the two popes uh the likely best picture winner 1917 was pretty affecting to me uh one child nation which was on nathan's list knives out which was on both of your lists um i really loved james gray's ad astra Mm -hmm. Speaking of space movies, I also really loved Apollo 11, the documentary that's all found footage, just a feat of editing about the first successful um, NASA mission to the moon. Um, the French animated film I Lost in My Body I really liked is yeah, super cool. That. It's on Netflix. Definitely worth checking out. Um, Transit, a movie from Christian Petzold, who's, I believe, German filmmaker yeah. who did um, Barbara and Phoenix, which was narrowly outside my top 10 list, whatever year it was in. Uh, really worth checking out. I think it's on Amazon. Um, my number 16 was Waves, the Trey Edward Schultz uh, film, which he's three for three in my eyes right, right now. Right, you loved Krishna. I loved, yeah, Krisha, uh, and then Nathan had It Follows. No, not... No, uh, it Comes, uh, at, it comes at Night. Comes <laughs> it's a generic <laughs> It title. Um, was on his top ten. Uh, but that's, yeah, another really, really great ensemble. My number 15 was a movie called Toy Story 4. If you've seen the first three, the fourth no, is just as it. good. My number 14 was Midsummer on, on your list. My number 13, and throughout most of the year, was in my top 10, is Homecoming, a film by Beyonce. Oh, yeah. Fucking stellar Netflix documentary about Beyonce's Coachella performance. Uh, my number 12 was Atlantics. And my number 11, sad to leave it off, uh, a movie, unfortunately, we haven't discussed it, uh, was Dolomite Is My Name. It's such a fucking fun movie. It's really fun. Another great ensemble. Yep. Yeah, the ensemble out. is deep and great in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just ranked mine 20. I didn't rank above 20, so I ranked 20 to 11. Number 20 was the two popes. Those popes? Like those two popes. Mm-hmm. They were fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 19, sadly, I didn't see like any documentaries this year, but number 19 was Amazing Grace. They were mm. Franklin. I almost like paired that with Homecoming to put it yeah, on the Yeah, which I actually watched for work because from this year, my work, whatever, we're talking about soul music. So, um, nice. But it was such a good documentary. Yep. Ruth Franklin, controversial, good at singing. She was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number 18 was 1917. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 17 was The Report. Oh, yeah. Another Adam Driver joint. Oh, and I love a good, like, 
investigative process film. That's very much my jam. Uh, Number 16 is a film called Fast Color. Oh, with Gugu. With Gugu Mbatha-Ra, who's my girl. I would really recommend seeking it out. It's sort of a superhero film, but grounded as a family drama. And it's Mm -hmm. beautiful and sort of mystical and has some really solid performances, especially from Gugu. Um, Number 15 was Rocket Man. Nice. Because it is the type of musical biopic that I like. It had a point of view. It mixed some things up. It had magical realism, good central performances. Number 14 is another sort of like, could be typical music film, but was grounded by amazing performances, which was Wild Rose. Yep. Number 13 is Honey Boy. Mm. Uh, another female directed film, sort of uh, autobiographical, uh, Shia LaBeouf. With our boy Noah Jupe, Jupe Hive. Jupe Hive, assemble. Um, number 12 was Last Man in San Francisco, which we talked about. Again, I think yep. I, I just saw it too recently for it to crack my top 10, but amazing. And number 11 was Marriage Story, a movie that for a long time was in my top 10, and then I, I, I had to get rid of something, and I decided I wanted Ready or Not, because I wanted something lighter. But I loved Marriage Story. Nice. Nice. So I did not rank anything outside like, of the ten. I have five honorable mentions, which are listed alphabetically. Hmm. <laughs> well, I'm starting with numbers. I don't know. There are different styles oh, sure, to alphabetical, sure. uh-huh. but 1917 is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, American Factory, which I don't think yeah. has been Ooh. mentioned. No. Um, a riveting documentary. Thanks, Obamas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks. <laughs> I, they are two of our listeners. Yes. For oh sure. yes. Um, I think we made. Didn't we make Barack's, we made Barack's uh, like, best podcast? Best podcast <laughs> yeah. for our one episode. Our, today. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. The third, not sorry. the third honorable mention is Little Women. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth is Marriage Story, mm-hmm. and the fifth is Us. Hey. Also been mentioned oh. a lot, and I agree with everything all of you said about the ones that were on my honorables, but not my top ten. Nice. Good right. year. So, Maddie, let's hear your number one. Let's do it. Absolute favorite of the year movie I fucking fell in love with and cannot stop thinking about. It's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm -hmm. Celine Sciamma's film that Nathan has (laughs) talked beautifully about already. Like, Brokeback Mountain or Calling By Your Name, other, like, gay-focused films that were my number ones in their years. This is... That's just such a rich subject that obviously resonates with me but just of queer love or attraction and not being able to act on that based on the time period or societal cultural pressures. And this is similar to that though. It's just a beautiful fucking work of art, Mm -hmm. just poetic, lyrical, gorgeous, every without being flashy at all. It's not trying to pull attention to its costumes, its art direction, but Every choice is so beautifully made. Um, yeah, Noemi Merlant and Adele Hanel, who play the, the leads, uh, as Nathan already discussed, the, the plot, are both absolutely incredible. Valeria Golino, who plays the, the mom, who you might know from Hot Shots or Rain Man. Such a face for film. I love, I don't know, I don't remember the actress, but there's really only like four characters. It's also a movie... Similar to, I guess, uh, the body remembers when the world broke up, yeah. or the world remembers, whatever it was, um, where there's really only like one man seen on screen briefly has maybe one line at the beginning, yeah, maybe at the end, and then it's all just 
it's very intimate. They focused on these women and better for it. Um, Claire Mathon or Mathon, who did the cinematography, also did the cinematography for Atlantics, and it's gorgeous. Oh, they're nice! So, I didn't know so, that yeah. actually because I've heard that Atlantics is also stunning. Beautiful, to look at. and they're both very different, but yeah. so distinct in their visual style and there are so many shots of this movie which for a film about a painting basically it should be beautiful but it's still beautiful in like unexpected and surprising ways and there there's just a scene of the two leads on like a cliffside where that kind of pulls focus between the two of them as they like look at each other and look away and it goes on like longer than you would expect but it's ah it just it sinks into your bones and it is fucking incredible it's a slow burn like i said when nathan was talking about it that i just fell in love with it's heartbroken heartbreaking <laughs> uh it's haunting it cast its spell on me and the cherry on top for me was uh not long before we saw the movie we had seen the musical hades town which is all mm. about the i believe greek myth orpheus of orpheus and eurydice and that kind of plays into this plot just a little bit in the way that it does it's ah uh, it my heart drops it's <laughs> it's so well executed it is a beautiful beautiful film that i can't wait to revisit well also i feel like it's important for our listeners to know like the way that like a good agatha christie style of murder mystery is catnip for me a movie about a painting is catnip for you. <laughs> like you Obviously. are notoriously like I do another another movie about a painting. <laughs> this yes. is for me. <laughs> but yeah, in a movie or, or in a year where there were plenty of films about artists. I mean, like right. women and writers. It, yeah, right. It's Mr. <sighs> Turner all over again. <laughs> I do. It's interesting. I, I do Mr. feel Turner. this is like just a, a broader conversation for us. But I do feel like this year, and I can't decide if it's. The that just cultural culture in general is so focused on kind of the same big ideas or if it's just the things that are resonating with us but I do feel like more than usual my top 10 has like a, a lot of very cohesive or running themes going yeah, for throughout sure. that yeah. like, I mean that's what resonated with you throughout the year right yep. like you know five of my movies are on here are specifically dealing with like income inequality sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean right or like cultural familial obligations is running through when you talk about a beautiful day in the neighborhood and the farewell and anyway yep it's just sort of interesting two last things I'll say two of my favorite music moments of the year there's a song that plays around the fire before her dress catches fire and it becomes portrait of a lady on fire that's a song that I can't stop listening to that's so fucking good uh, and then the the ending uh, which takes place at an opera and is similar to like the Nicole Kidman like incredible scene in birth just or the Anna Paquin scene and at the end of Margaret that's just devastating but so well executed you gotta check it out listener Single listener, portrait when you, of a when lady on fire. Barack, watch it. It'll be in theaters next Friday, Valentine's Day. Probably just in. We have no markets. idea when anyone is listening to this, but sure, next Friday. Right. Yeah. Who knows when this will get posted? As if Barack Obama is not waiting every day, refreshing the feed for Cinedrunk. Cine, Cine won't I'm stop like, what emailing me. <laughs> I like this. This should just be a runner that we pretend that Barack Obama listens to our <laughs> podcast. Um, 
All right, well, I'm going to share my number one, and then before I really talk about it, I might ask Nathan to share his number one, because I have a feeling that he and I have the same number one, and then we can we do. all just be in conversation. So, my number one is Parasite. So is mine. Yeah. Um, again, it's this film that, like, I don't even know... To talk about it feels like to ruin the experience. Yeah. And it is so experiential. Which almost feels like it's selling it short. Because there are films that are experiential but then don't have any lingering things. But this is a film that I find myself thinking about at least like once a week. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, for me I think... Well, excuse me. Um, (laughs) I think the aspect of it that rises above for me is just... You've talked about how there's not a wasted shot. There's not a wasted idea. There's not a wasted line. There's not a wasted decision and in that and but at the same time it's like chock full of it's dense of ideas yeah Yeah. but in a way that works so it's kind of like not that it feels overstuffed and underexplored right i'm i'm still surprised i'm still shocked that it doesn't feel overstuffed yeah but it doesn't (laughs) no and it's because it's it's like a 3D puzzle. Like, I picture it as a sphere. Yeah. A puzzle that's put together with many different pieces. Yeah. But at the end, it's just a smooth, perfect sphere. Much like another great film, Sphere, from 1998. <laughs> we no, need to kidding. not. I mean, listen, did I watch that film many times as a young person? Yes, but we need to not compare that to Paris. <laughs> yeah. But I had that feeling that I had when, you know, when you take, like, a movie, a film class in college or whatever, and you're like excited to approach things from an academic wet tr- uh, perspective, and you're talking about all these great directors who, you know, there's not a wasted shot or a waste, and it's like, yeah. oh, now this is what people are talking about. Right. Oh, yeah. That feeling just throughout the whole thing, like, this this is... A gift to humanity. Right. This art is a gift. Right. Yeah. The other thing that I think is so interesting is that, like, so obviously, like, I think in this house we are part of the bong hive. We are bongamese. Bongamese, as Cohen has coined. (laughs) Um, And actually, now this is the third film of the last three films that have made my top ten because Snowpiercer was in my top ten. Okja. Okja. Was in my top 10, and now this is in my top 10. And I think what's so interesting about it is it's definitely like a paired, in some ways, like a more intimate film than he has made. Mm-hmm. But it is equally audacious and a thrill ride. And I think it speaks to his quality as a director and what a uh, confident voice he has that he can do what is a smaller, more intimate set. And I feel just as viscerally, like, thrilled and on a ride as I do watching Snowpiercer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. And his ambitions aren't smaller. And his like ambitions are not smaller. Yeah. And but they're more grounded in the real world. But correct. still impactful. Yeah. And even, like, the, the ideology behind them. Because even going back to, like, the host, he is very much a man who is uh, concerned about, and it's a huge problem. After seeing this movie, I was, like, reading up on, like, you know, what sort of culturally is happening in South Korea. And there is a huge wealth disparity, like even worse than here in South Korea. And so um, income inequality, like it is very much on Bong Joon-ho's mind. And also climate change is very much on Bong Joon-ho's oh, yeah. mind. And that theme continues into this film just on a different 
scale in a more intimate way in a very mm-hmm. personal human level compared to his last two films and I just think as a filmmaker that makes him so exciting to watch that he like has a real point of view and is finding different ways to approach it um god what an exciting thrilling movie. it's also <laughs> just gorgeous the cinematography oh yeah gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean the gorgeous element. isn't necessarily the word you would use for some of the scenes <laughs> but like yeah yeah absolutely it's a beautiful film absolutely and again the cat like we've talked about it, the cast is doing sure i kind of want to shout out because again the whole cast is so great but a personal favorite of mine is um and i apologize to this actress and anyone who is of korean descent or speaks korean who listens to this podcast because i'm going to butcher the name but it's cho yo jung who plays um the mother in the wealthy family oh yeah she is a fucking brilliant comedic actress. She is so funny. And so much of the plot hinges on her. Like, around yeah. her. She's sort of like the central... Link between the Link two between everything that's happening. And, I mean, there, the whole sequence with the peaches. <laughs> and her discovering the, like, napkin with... The hot sauce. hot sauce on it is one of the most extraordinary physical pieces of acting I have seen. What a joy. Um, what a phenomenon of a movie. I know. Right. I mean, it speaks to its quality that it's made as much money as it has right. and gotten the recognition as it right. has globally because it's just legit that good. I mean, also the thing that like it was not like a South Korean film that was made to appeal to American audiences. Like, it is very... And I've been reading more and more about it. Like, it is very specific to South Korea. Even to the thing that has now become sort of a meme that we all know, which is, like, the Jessica... Chicago Chicago Only Child or whatever, yeah. Illinois Only Child, whatever. The song that she's singing is a common children's song in South Korea that's used as a mnemonic device to teach in school. Right. So, like... You know what I mean? Yep. It's just like, we like it because the actress is so great and it's played so fun and she's so deadpan in that scene. But then if you think about like a Korean audience seeing it, they're like, it's hilarious that she's, it would be like a, an American film where someone's learning their cover story for a scam, singing it to like, Mary Had a Little Lamb or right. something like, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. brilliant. Yep. It is. I mean, it's basically tied with Portrait of Lady on Fire for yeah. me, like, they're the best films of the year. I just went with my heart, and it was Portrait of Lady on Fire, but Parasite is, like, the film of the year. Yeah. Such an accomplishment. And it's sort of, like, again, it's, like, the Moonlight thing, where I feel like my number two, in some ways, resonates. It's the one that, like, moves me the most, or I feel the deepest connection to, being Little Women or that year, 20th Century Women. But, like, Moonlight, Parasite, they're just undeniable masterpieces that people will be talking about for however long we are able to continue (laughs) to exist as a species (laughs) on that at least four years (laughs) we'll see statistically on that very positive note (laughs) that's 2019 it's 2019 top 10s we did it we will be back with a performance episode but uh, and our cinemunchies and yeah. Final Oscar predictions and all that. Yeah. You know. 2019. Film. Thanks Yay. for listening. We love you, Gary. <laughs> Gary, we love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.